In what we believe to be the Apostle Paul's last letter in Scripture, in the last chapter of this letter, he gives vital teaching about completing what God calls us to do in life. In this message, we seek to learn how each of us can finish the work God gives us to do. The scripture reading for the day is 2 Timothy chapter 4, verses 1-8. through 8. Thank you all for being here with us at uh, River Oaks. This uh, first Sunday in August as the uh, summer is drawing near to a close. Um, I want to just let you know that next Sunday is a very special Sunday in the life of our church. It's a Sunday when our students, our youth ministry, leads the service with kind of a recap of the different mission trips, things they've done over the years, with video, with testimonies. Uh, our attendance actually always goes up on Youth Sunday, which is really great because uh, everyone's come to realize what a wonderful job our students do in that service. So that's next Sunday, and then on the 19th we'll finish up our study of First and Second Timothy, and then August 26th uh, begin a couple of weeks on the topic of marriage. Today, however, we continue our study of the New Testament books of First and Second Timothy. And if you're just joining us, these two letters found near the end of the New Testament were originally written by the Apostle Paul as letters to the one he called his child in the faith, Timothy. Paul had mentored Timothy since he was a young man, and Timothy was now an overseer, a leader in the church, overseeing churches in the region of Ephesus. And in these letters of 1 and 2 Timothy, the Apostle Paul is giving guidance and instruction about life in the church, focusing on the need for truth to be maintained and taught in the churches, but also giving practical guidance, like how the church is to care for widows, how the church should select elders and deacons, things like this. Now we get to the last chapter uh, in 2 Timothy this morning. Bible commentators believe the book of 2 Timothy is the last letter we have in the Bible by the Apostle Paul. So we're in the last chapter of his last letter. And in this final chapter, he begins talking about his departure that is, his departure from this life, his death. And as David Holcomb said last week in his message, when a dying man speaks of life, we would do well to listen. The Apostle Paul is talking about how he has run his race. He's finished the course. He's calling Timothy to fulfill what God has called him to do. And in doing this, he gives each one of us guidance and instruction about how to run the race of life to which every one of us here is called. We read the first, first uh, eight verses in 2 Timothy chapter 4, and you'll see those on the screen. I charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead, and by his appearing in his kingdom, preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season. Reprove, rebuke, and exhort with complete patience and teaching. For the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching, but having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions and will turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into myths. As for you, always be sober-minded, endure suffering, do the work of an evangelist, fulfill your ministry. 
For I am already being poured out as a drink offering, and the time of my departure has come. I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. Henceforth, there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day, and not only to me, but also all who have loved his appearing. Now, as Paul's talking about finishing his own race in life and guiding Timothy as to how to finish his, he's giving us principles as to how we can each finish the race of life to which we are called. And it's interesting that he begins this charge to Timothy by calling him and calling us to remember something, to remember the coming judgment. Judgment is not one of those themes that... uh, we typically rejoice to hear about. There are parts of the Bible that fill us with joy, but there are other parts of the Bible that are a little more sobering. They lead us to a a godly fear, a godly reverence. They lead us to self-examination. And the topic of coming judgment is one of those, but it's very common uh, throughout the Bible. Some people think the theme of judgment is just an Old Testament theme, but it's not. It's throughout our New Testament as well. And he begins this charge to Timothy saying, I charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who's to judge the living and the dead. And then he, in verse 8, brings this up again, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day. On the screen, you'll see just a sampling of New Testament passages about This coming day of judgment, it is so frequently mentioned in the New Testament that sometimes it's simply called the day because everyone understood what it meant. The day, the day of the Lord's return, the day when he would come as judge. The words on the screen are from the lips of Jesus in the Gospel of Matthew. He says, truly I say to you, it would be more bearable on the day of judgment for the land of Sodom and Gomorrah than for that town speaking of a town that had rejected him in his words. He said in Matthew 12, I tell you, on the day of judgment, people will give account for every careless word they speak. In the book of Acts chapter 17, the apostle Paul is preaching a sermon. and In his sermon, he says that God has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he's appointed. And of this he's given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. And that that person to whom he refers, of course, is Jesus. In Paul's own letters to the churches, he mentions this often. In the book of Romans, he writes, Why do you pass judgment on your brother? Why do you despise your brother? For we will all stand before the judgment seat of Christ. So then each of us will give an account of himself to God. Writing to the Corinthians, He says these words, we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ so that each one may receive what is due for what he has done in the body, whether good or bad. Now let me pause here and say, I expect this this raises some questions and it's very reasonable that it would because someone may be thinking, well, does not the Bible teach that when I have embraced Jesus Christ as my Savior and Lord, I can be assured that he took the judgment for my sins and that I will not. And I do believe that is correct, that is accurate, that is true. That's the heart of the gospel, that the Son of God, Jesus, 
when he died on the cross, bore the weight of the wrath and judgment against, uh, uh, of God against our sins upon himself. He took our place. He bore the judgment as, as if he were the guilty one. So that in receiving him as Savior and Lord, we stand before God justified, declared forgiven. What then is meant by this written to the churches that we must all appear before the judgment of Christ? While I do not believe any believer needs to fear if you have truly embraced Jesus, if he is your Savior, if he is your Lord, you do not need to fear rejection by God. The judgment that the Apostle Paul mentions in the words on the screen, I think, is further clarified for us in the next verses you'll see to the Corinthians, where Paul writes of those who are working in uh, spreading the message of the gospel, that each one's work will become manifest, for the day will disclose it. And the day is a reference to this day of Christ's return, this judgment, when all things are made new. When those things done by believers in secret, those sacrifices made, are rewarded openly by your Father in heaven. Paul says on that day, works will be tested. They'll be revealed. If the work that anyone's built on the foundation survives, he'll receive a reward. If anyone's work is burned up, he'll suffer, suffer loss, though he himself will be saved, but only as through fire. And I believe this is a reference to the fact that there will be a perfect evaluation of what we have done in our service to our God. Time when he rewards some tremendously for their faithfulness, for their hidden works. There are many things about this time and about this coming judgment uh, that are not revealed to us in Scripture. There are lots of questions I have and I imagine you do too. But there are two things I think we can know for sure. One is this, in that day, no one will ever be able to point a finger at God, not even Satan himself, and say, you are unjust. His perfect justice will have been fulfilled. And those who have embraced Jesus as Savior and Lord, who have embraced what he did on the cross, who know him, who love him, we will forever marvel at the immensity of the grace of God that has been bestowed on us, his children. And the Bible teaches that is something that we will marvel at for all of eternity. Why these many references to coming judgment written to Christians? written in the letters to the churches. Well, I think there, there are two reasons we need to take it very seriously. Number one is it should give us an urgency in evangelism. That is, in spreading the message of Jesus' salvation far and near to people who haven't heard it, who haven't experienced it. It should give us an urgency about that. But secondly, it should cause us to live with a spiritual alertness. If you read the New Testament Gospels, you'll find that Jesus taught a number of parables, uh, stories to demonstrate spiritual truths. 
And he would talk about things like a, a master who went on a journey and his servants were given certain talents to invest and that master would return. It becomes clear that Jesus is talking about uh, an evaluation of the use of talents when he returns and he concludes some of those stories with words <clears throat> like these. Be ready. Be watchful. The key in his teachings and in his parables is often to live with spiritual alertness, to use your time wisely, to use it well for the honor and glory of God, to invest the talents he's given you faithfully to serve him fully and give him honor. As we think about that coming day, I think the most important thing that we can do in preparation for that day is to build our lives on the right foundation. On the screen, you'll see a picture of a sinkhole. It's an incredibly large sinkhole, 30, 40 feet in diameter, and it happened to have opened in Bowling Green, Kentucky, on the floor, a showroom floor, of the National Corvette Museum several years ago. It happened at night when nobody was there, and so a motion camera called, I believe, this very picture you see on the screen. This sinkhole, 30, 40 feet in diameter, 20 feet deep, swallowed up some incredibly valuable, rare uh, Corvettes, including the one millionth Corvette, I think it was estimated worth of $750,000. And so they were swallowed up. Who would have ever thought when they built this museum that the foundation would have been so poor. Now, as you, as you look at that picture, I just want to read some verses to you from the lips of Jesus, who said, Everyone then who hears these words of mine and does them, he will be like a wise man who built his house on the rock. And the rain fell and the floods came. And the winds blew and beat on that house, but it did not fall because it had been founded on the rock. And everyone who hears these words of mine and does not do them will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. And the rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and beat against that house and it fell. And great was the fall of it. Jesus is teaching us what I think Scripture teaches throughout, that the foundation on which to build our lives is God's Word. And that leads us to Paul's uh, second emphasis to Timothy about finishing his race. And he calls Timothy to preach the Word, to be ready in and out of season, because the time's coming when people won't endure sound teaching. They'll want to accumulate teachers who will say what they want to hear. That is, they'll want to hear from their churches and from preachers things that suit their passions, their preferences, their desires, that make them feel good about themselves and doing what it is they feel like doing. But do not be deterred. The church is to be built on a foundation of God's revelation of His Word not by trying to appeal to people in order that they might feel good. What foundation are you building your life on? Jesus, in his teaching throughout, in his ministry throughout, lived in fulfillment of Scripture, and he often noted that. 
He called Scripture the Word of God, which cannot be broken. Often referred to it, often quoted it. Sometimes I'll hear people say, well, you know, the Bible, it's, it's a book. You know, maybe it's got some good stuff in it. But ultimately, I think we should be guided by our conscience, our reason, our intuition, and of course, love. The problem is everybody has a different definition and understanding of what that means. One person may say, well, my intuition, my conscience tells me I really don't like my spouse anymore, but I feel drawn to this person I work with, so really, you know, I think that's okay in God's eyes for me. And so adultery is justified. Some person may say, well, my conscience fully convinces me what God wants me to do is strap on a suicide vest and go into a crowd of people and kill as many people as I can. Jesus built his life on the Word of God, what we call the Scripture. For him, that was the Old Testament. We now have the words of Christ. And as you see in the next slide on the screen, throughout the books of First and Second Timothy, the Apostle Paul referenced the words of God, the sound words of our Lord Jesus, the teachings we refer to as the gospel, as the basis for truth, the foundation on which to build our lives if we're to fulfill what God's called us to do. Calls them in First and Second Timothy just a sampling, the words of the faith, scripture, the scripture, the sound words of our Lord Jesus, the gospel, the word of God, the word of truth, the sacred writing, scripture, the word, sound teaching, the truth. He's giving us a foundation on which to build our lives. Does it not make sense that our creator, if he's called us to know him and to follow him and to worship him, would have given us a revelation of who he is, what he's like, and an unchanging revelation of his truth and his will and his ways by which we are to live. Paul the Apostle believed that. Jesus believed that. All the writers of the Bible, often referring to their words with things like, Thus saith the Lord, believed they were giving us God's revelation. Paul's saying to Timothy, and he's saying to us, build your life on the foundation of God's truth. Last week, David Holcomb put something on the screen, we'll put it up again just for a moment, that we call our vision frame as a church. You'll hear more about this in the fall when we talk about our vision uh, for the year 2025, what we pray and hope and uh, dream that the Lord will be doing in and through our church but on the left side of the frame at the top, you'll see several values. The first is also, I believe, the foremost and the most foundational, and that is the value of being Bible-centered because we really want our church always to be built on the authority of Scripture. That means, for example, that Scripture that we believe to be God's inspired truth, God's Word, takes precedence over anyone's opinion. 
takes precedence over any church growth strategy. Someone comes along and says, we've now got a way you can guarantee to double your church attendance and income and you'll just do this. Well, if it doesn't fit with Scripture, it's rejected. Scripture takes precedence over any tradition. It's true for our church and it should be true for each of our lives as well. And so the Apostle Paul is saying to Timothy and to us, to finish the race of life, to run it well, consider that there is a coming day, a day of judgment. Build your life on God's word. And thirdly, in his own example, he teaches us to keep your eyes on the finish line. I fought the good fight. I've finished the race. I've kept the faith. Paul had an anticipation. Like all of you do who run races, those of you who run our 5K here, you anticipate what's ahead. And there's something about seeing that finish line may still be a bit in the distance. It just gives you joy, gives you fulfillment. We see that in the Apostle Paul at the close of this section. What a beautiful celebration, you know, to have finished a race. And the Apostle Paul, he's considering that himself. Verses 6 through 8 of this passage are sometimes called the last will and testament of the Apostle Paul. And in them, he gives us three things, his present, his past, his future. His present, he says, is marked by sacrifice. And we read that in the verses you see on the screen. He says, for I'm already being poured out as a drink offering, and the time of my departure has come. Here, the Apostle Paul is using Old Testament sacrifice language. In the book of Numbers, the Old Testament, there was a particular type of worship sacrifice prescribed for uh, the people of Israel in their worship of of God. As they were bringing sacrifices to, to him, there was a sacrifice known as a drink offering. This would be wine poured out in service to God. There's an instance in the life of King David when he was thirsty for for water from a certain well, his soldiers went and secured that for him at the risk of their lives. And David said, I, I can't drink this. These men got it at the risk of their lives. He poured it out as a drink offering to God. The Apostle Paul elsewhere pictured his life as a living sacrifice, a sacrifice being poured out to God. And he's not just speaking of that for himself. He's calling every follower of Jesus, including you and me, to the same thing. In the book of Romans, chapter 12, the Apostle Paul writes, I appeal to you by the mercies of God to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your reasonable worship. Cause us to pour out our lives as he's doing. That's his present. Then he references his past. In his past, the fulfillment of his ministry has required a great deal of endurance. It's common to find the word endurance in the writing of the Apostle Paul. And he now charges Timothy, you be sober-minded, endure suffering, do the work of an evangelist, fulfill your ministry, endure. Notice the terms he uses in verse 7. I have fought the good fight. They're all in past tense. I've finished the race. I've kept the faith. The word fault is an interesting Greek word. It comes from the word agonizomai. It reminds us of our word agonize. And it means to struggle, fight. These are words of action. 
to finish the race God called me to. I've, I've had to agonize. I've had to struggle. I've had to fight. But I've endured. I finished it. I kept the faith. Perseverance and endurance is going to be required to fulfill what God's called each of us to do in life. There's one further thing. He now points to his future in eyes of faith. Sacrifice, endurance, faith. Here we see Paul's anticipation. Here we see his vision of what's ahead. Henceforth, there's laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day. But he's not just pointing us to that for himself. He says, not only to me, but all who've loved his appearing. The day of his return. Those who've endured, those who've sacrificed, those who've been faithful, those who've served him. It'll be a day of great, great joy and great reward. He's telling us it takes a faith-guided, biblically grounded vision to enable us to sacrifice and endure and to faithfully live the life to which God calls us. Life as a follower of Jesus will absolutely not always be easy. It will require faithful endurance. It'll require self-denial. It'll require sacrifice. It will require sometimes walking in love when you feel that hatred is justified. It will require forgiving someone when you feel that bitterness is justified. It will require self-denial. But we look to Jesus as our greatest example. And I want to read again the words as I conclude this part of the message that David Holcomb read at the very beginning of the service. They come from the book of Hebrews chapter 12 and verse 1, which reads, Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who, for the joy that was set before him, endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. I'd like to take just a few minutes before we close to do something that's a little different, uh, we've done it just a few times in our church. And that is to have just a, a few minutes of quiet, reflective prayer. On the screen, you'll see several passages. I'll read them briefly, but allow just a little time for you to pray the emphasis of those words for yourself. We want to allow God to use his word to shape our lives so that each one of us can more fully walk in the will, the way, the path that he's chosen for us. So would you join me now in considering these words, pondering what they mean, and as appropriate, praying them for your own life. Matthew chapter 7, Jesus said, Everyone who hears these words of mine and does them will be like a wise man who built his house on the rock. 
and the rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and beat on that house, but it did not fall because it was founded on the rock. Father, would you help us to examine our lives and be sure that we are building our lives on the rock of your truth, your word, your revelation. And let us not merely hear, but do. The next verse comes from Psalm 86. It's a prayer. It reads, teach me your way, O Lord, that I may walk in your truth. Unite my heart to fear your name. To unite my heart means give me an undivided heart. Lord, teach us how to walk in your truth. Give us a fully devoted, undivided heart to live in reverence of your name. The next verse is one that was written by Moses as a prayer in the 90th Psalm. So teach us to number our days that we may get a heart of wisdom. How would God speak to you through that prayer? Lord, teach us to live in such a way that we not only gain wisdom, but we use our time wisely. Help us live with an urgency and the awareness that you will return. These next words come from the book of Colossians chapter 1. A prayer for the church that we would be strengthened with all power according to his glorious might. For all endurance and patience with joy, Lord, strengthen each of us here with your power. Lord, would you particularly bring your joy today to the one who is deeply discouraged. These next words are a prayer for the church in Thessalonica and for us. To this end, we always pray for you that our God may make you worthy of his calling and may fulfill every resolve for good and every work of his faith, work of faith by his power. Lord, would you work in us so that we fulfill your calling and every resolve for good in every work of faith by your power.
The next verse reminds us that God himself is able to make us holy and to prepare for that day when Jesus comes. May the God of peace himself sanctify you completely. And may your whole spirit and soul and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. This final verse is a declaration of faith that the Lord will fulfill his purpose for me. Ponder how he might do that in your life. now bring these prayers to our Lord in the name of Jesus Christ Amen one of the reasons I like to do that from time to time is because I think one of the, the greatest helps to developing our prayer lives is learning to let scripture shape and form our prayers. And maybe when you, when you read your Bible regularly, instead of just rushing through to kind of check today's reading off the list, think about praying through the scripture as you're reading it. Sometimes something may speak to you in particular and you may just offer it back to God as a prayer. And it's a wonderful way to enrich your prayer life and to join Bible reading with prayer.